Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And of course, I'm joined again with Robert Hutton, my guest co-host here in Lourdes, France. In Bonjour, French, Deacon. Yeah. You always come up with the with the French things, and that's uh, very impressive. We're in France, French bread, French coffee. That's right. Uh, French fries even. I've had no, French I fries. No, not in France. <laughs> they have French fries. Mm-hmm. They call them something else, but... Yeah, palm frites. <laughs> that's right. Know. Well, that voice you just heard is our guest, Abbot Placid Solari, the abbot of Belmont Abbey, which is a Benedictine abbey in North Carolina, right? Yes, that's true. As long or when you go back, you're going to find out you're still abbot. Is that? <laughs> Hopefully, we'll still be. I'm sure you will. I think you're abbot for life, Deacon Jeff. Maybe well, I'm about I that. know, but you know, you never know. That's why we've got a guest <laughs> to talk about it. Well, very good, Abbot. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Catholic Cafe. Merci. Uh, very good. But this is all French. Um, and so what we wanted to talk about today, one of the things we're going to focus on, I think, is we wanted to talk about just what it is to be uh, a monk. What, what is monasticism all about? We hear that term every once in a while. And a lot of our listeners might be a little confused about what that is. When people ask that question, I simply say monastic life is a way of seeking God by praying, living, working, in the same community for a lifetime. And the important part, of course, be the praying. The living together is what sort of rubs off the rough edges and the selfishness and the self-centeredness and so. And um, the work is also a a healthy discipline for for seeking God. But obviously the key there uh, as well is that sense of community, right? That you're bound together in a a community. Community life is central to Benedictine life. And again, that's when people ask what's the difference between monks and other religious, basically I'd say you've got monastic religious and apostolic, and most people are more familiar with the apostolic religious, the Jesuits, Franciscans, the Sisters of Mercy. Uh, I used to have the uh, image of space. The apostolic communities are usually organized provincially within a province of maybe several states, and they can transfer anywhere within that area to do what work they do, whether it's schools or hospitals or parish work. Whereas the monastery, we create a space where the the monks are supposed to stay, that praying, working, living together, and invite other people in for a longer or shorter time. We take a vow of stability, actually, to the community. Who started this habit? Was it, uh, I mean, you said you were a Benedictine monk. I mean, was was he the first monk, St. Benedict? No, we don't know exactly when monasticism started. St. Anthony of Egypt and St. Pacomius are sort of seen as the, the... the first founders, but in fact, the monasticism seems to emerge somewhere in the third or fourth century, perhaps as a result of almost the domesticating of the church as it becomes more accepted in in society than those who, during times of persecutions, had formed sort of the core of a, the pillars of a persecuted community, start separating themselves out. Uh, and it emerges in the Christian world more or less simultaneously in that third to fourth century, mid-third to mid-fourth century. And I do remember reading uh, a couple of times in terms of history and, and monasticism that that really were the monastics, it were the, the monks that were sort of preserving a lot of culture and some of the best parts of society that were, when we were having all these terrible downfalls, you know, we rise and fall like a roller coaster throughout our, our uh, storied past. But that really the monasteries, because of that stability, kind of held things together 
together in their in their place, right? Uh, well, it's a stability part of it, and also part of it, I think. And we're talking really about sort of the the monks in Western Western or Latin Christianity at this point, I guess. Oh yes, right. Um, where they had their scriptoria, by remembers the illuminated manuscripts, and so partly because of that stability and they had a culture of reading and writing in the monastery, but also because monastic life, at least according to St. Benedict's rule, doesn't make all that great a distinction between what's holy and what's not. Uh, the whole monastery is God's house, and he says in one place that you to treat the utensils or the tools like the vessels of the altar, because in fact they're also used for the service of God. So in copying the the, particularly the Latin manuscripts of the classical Latin authors, they saw in them something of value in and of themselves, the beauty of the poetry or the profundity of the philosophy, and that in and of itself, even though they weren't specifically religious writings or Christian writings, gave them a value. There was a truth in them. And that's all part of the reason also. You mentioned the rule of St. Benedict, and I know a lot of people listening have heard that term, the rule of St. Francis or the rule mm-hmm. of St. Benedict. What exactly is that rule, and is it, is it literally a list of rules? It's not a list of rules as such. Uh, St. Benedict lived between about 480 and 540-something. So in the 6th century, he wrote his rule. And interestingly enough, there hasn't been a day then since about the beginning of the 6th century, so the early 500s, when that rule hasn't been a sort of fundamental constitution for communities of monastic men and women. So that's part of the binding together that we're all rallied around that same rule. That's right. It's, uh, someone described uh, the Benedictines as tribes with a common heritage. Uh-huh. And that rule itself, St. Benedict wasn't trying to write something new or innovative or original, as that wouldn't have been appreciated at his time. He's really trying to distill the previous monastic tradition into a livable form. So the rule is a prologue and 73 chapters. The chapters may be you know, several pages long or some just a paragraph. Um, they try to organize a way of living the Christian life, monastic life basically, that has survived probably down to the present. That's a long, about a millennium and a half because it's both practical, that is it's a, a way of monastic life that's accessible to ordinary people and also it gives a latitude of discretion to the abbot to change things. And you can imagine that in 1,500 years, lots of little details have changed. But this, this way of life and its essentials has continued in a whole variety of cultural settings, of uh, times through history, wars, revolutions, uh, coming to, to the New World and with 19th century in particular. Could you give us some examples? What are some of the rules? Like, does it tell you when to pray or, or just for people living that maybe have never seen a monastery? I want to know which ones Robert's already broken. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm Probably all of them. <laughs> As I said, it's not so much a list of rules. It's the rule. A regula really means uh, something like that gives a trajectory. It gives a direction. Is that like, a, do you, can, you tell your kids, you must be in by 10 o'clock right. at night. I guess right. that's a house rule. Do the Benedictines, I mean, is it rules like that or is it? No, it's more of setting up. He does set up, for example, He's got several chapters on the community prayer, and that's important. So he arranges what psalms are said at what time, because you break up your day for times of community prayer, according to the Liturgy of the Hours in the church's tradition. Uh, so he, he arranges that fairly, fairly in, a, in a fairly detailed fashion, but then he says if the abbot finds that another order would be fine, let him, let him order that in that way. So he will give sort of general directions for, for prayer, for example. Um, 
on the times for the meals of the monks, uh, the times for their work, and the times for their Lectio Divina, their meditative and prayerful reading of the Bible. We have to keep in mind, too, that at St. Benedict's Day, he didn't have a a day of 24 60-minute hours. The day breathes, as it were, as the seasons change. So he always starts with Easter, then through the summer, and then the winter, and then Lent. And the, the times sort of differ in those different seasons, but it's also expanding and contracting as the daylight and, and night hours conversely expand and contract as the seasons change. So he tries to get a rhythm of, that involves a balanced life of prayer, End of work. You mentioned that uh, St. Benedict said, if the abbot thinks this or chooses that, that causes me to start to question just a little bit about the hierarchy of the monastery. What, what, how do we see that? I mean, we are, we're used to in, the, in our parishes, we go to our parish and we see our parish priest, and, and he'll, he's, the, he's the pastor, then we'll have an, an associate pastor, and there may be a lowly deacon floating around there somewhere. So. Very That's lowly. right, very lowly. And then, uh, yeah. of course, there's the bishop in the diocese. How's the monastery structured or... or how are all the monks bound together in that particular order? Uh, we join a particular monastery. The Benedictines in the late 19th century were organized into the worldwide Benedictine Confederation, but the, the general tradition is sort of autonomous monasteries, as they join and take a vow of stability in one monastery, that are perhaps joined together in congregations to mutually assist one another. But within the community you join, uh, everyone is, is a monk. Um, for the, the guidance and leadership of the community, the, the monks elect their own abbot, usually from within the same community. The abbot's job, I say, is to make decisions because part of monastic life is given up individual ownership. So we corporately own the goods of the monastery. So the abbot leads in, in making decisions and listening, first of all. That's the first word in the rule is listen. So the abbot has to listen to the community. He has to have a vision of how this life ought to be lived today so that it's in authentic continuity with the Benedictine tradition, and then propose that to the monks. And what comes out of that from that interplay between the abbot and the community will probably be richer than what any individual went in with. Uh, and ultimately, the abbot makes decisions. Uh, they, so the buck stops with the abbot, The buck right? stops with the abbot and, and Benedictine life, although he has... The St. Benedict allows the abbot to share his authority, appoints a prior... Who, de- who deals with generally the the day-to-day running of the community and so forth. Like There's what groceries to buy or uh, things like that. I think that's a procurator more. Oh. And so there are other there are officials Abbott there. Abbott Placid might be very particular about what groceries <laughs> to buy. I don't know. He's the abbot. No, that's a, whatever's there is behind. <laughs> very good. But there's, there's a business manager. There's someone in charge of formation. There's another one in charge of guests. And in particular for the, he talks about the spiritual elders, that is the most important job of the abbot is the spiritual life of the monks and to lead in that and to guide in that. But he can delegate that too as there's sometimes perhaps the abbot's not the right person to deal with this or that monk in a certain situation. So he allows delegation. Very good. Uh, We're talking to uh, Abbot Placid Solari, and we're going to talk more about monks and monasticism, and we're going to tell you what to do if you're suddenly feeling called to go to the monastery for either to live there for all time or to uh, just a visit. So we'll talk about that when we get right back. Before we do that, though, I wanted to remind everyone at home that we have a a great website to visit, and that's www.thecatholiccafe.com. Uh, and I'd also like you to email me. Do that at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, we'll be right back.
I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. If one were to pick the most influential person of the Middle Ages, there are few that would come to mind with greater impact upon history than St. Benedict of Nursia, the founder of Western monasticism. Benedict was born in Umbria to a Roman noble family in 480 AD. At age 15, he left his family for Rome to complete his education. Though originally ambitious, his study of the Gospels led him to desire to live for Christ. So Benedict left Rome and joined a community. There, he devoted himself to prayer, work, silence, and study of the scriptures and church fathers. Over time, his reputation for holiness grew. After a small miracle was attributed to his intercession, Benedict left this community because of his notoriety, desiring to live the life of a hermit. Arriving at Subiaco, Benedict began living in prayerful solitude in a cave, with a nearby monk graciously agreeing to provide him with food. His reputation for holiness continued to spread, with several miracles being attributed to his intercession. Though he wished to remain a hermit, a local community of monks pleaded with Benedict to be their leader. He reluctantly accepted. But ultimately, these monks tried to poison him, as they thought his pious rule of life was too harsh. So he fled and returned to a life of solitude. But other monks came and begged for his help. Benedict agreed, then left the hermitage and founded 12 monasteries near Subiaku. As Benedict devoted himself to this new monastic life, his fame and influence grew throughout the region. St. Benedict's monasteries made no distinctions based upon birth. Men from noble families and sons of slaves would work and pray together as one family. He developed a rule of life for monks, known as the Rule of St. Benedict. This rule contains 73 short chapters regulating the spiritual and administrative life of a monastery. It establishes how a lay community of monks should be organized, how and when to pray, and how to live a pious life. The rule known for its moderation and balance, transformed monasticism and is still followed today by thousands of Benedictine monks and nuns throughout the world. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. We're still talking to Abbot Placid Solari. Now, Abbot, you were talking about earlier about visitors. You mentioned, you know, there was somebody in charge of the, those who might come to visit the monastery. Do you encourage people to come and visit the monastery, or do you just have the doors open and whoever happens to wander in? How does that work? St. Benedict has an actual chapter in the rule, chapter 53, I believe it is, on the reception of guests which begins, let all guests who present themselves be welcomed as Christ, for in them he is surely received. Uh, So at St. Benedict's time, when there weren't the uh, motels and hotels and so, monasteries would be placed where where travelers uh, could find lodging that was safe. The Holiday Inn of the Middle Ages? Uh, Well, somewhat, yeah. (laughs) They didn't have a swimming pool there. Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) And so he also says that guests are never lacking in monasteries. 
And it's a place, as I said, where we're, the monks are supposed to stay and you invite people in for a longer or a shorter time. Uh, some monasteries have guest, large guest houses and do organized retreats where they will invite people to come for a retreat. At Belmont, we're a smaller community. We do have people who come and will stay with us. We invite them to simply live with us and come to prayers with us. And if someone, they wish to speak with one of the monks, one of them is available. What strikes people, we had a, a dozen of our, our college students stay with us through the Easter Triduum. And almost to a man, they said that what struck them was the silence. Mm. That that was the most impressive and perhaps one of the more beneficial aspects of their stay with us. That it was the silence. How often is it silent in a monastery? For us, we would, living in a monastery, we would say never. But I think <laughs> people coming from, from outside oftentimes make us realize the, the value of what we have. Silence is, is a value. People often think that monks take a vow not to talk, which we don't. But St. Benedict has a, a chapter on silence as well. And there are times and places. If one really wishes to pray, you have to have some silence, both external and internal. So silence is a value, and I think probably the monastery is generally a, a fairly quiet place, even though we can be bent out of shape more easily, perhaps, about the, the lack thereof at times. But it's good to, to, to see that silence, and I think a lot of our listeners who, even in their, their parish expenses, experiences going to, go to Mass, you know, the books tell us that silence is an important mm-hmm. and integral part of, of prayer, and a lot of people think, well, You'd think that prayer means that I'm saying something. And really, sometimes it's really just that listening part. Sometimes prayer just listening or sitting in God's presence. You don't have to say or do anything. Well, Abbott, how would I know if I'm a young man, if I'm called to be a monk? And if, if, I, if I'm from a Catholic family and I feel God's call and there's the diocesan priesthood and there's Franciscans and there's monks, what is it about them? And I, what do you tell people that are looking for a religious vocation how do they know that they're called to the monastic life? Well, I think any vocation, probably everyone would have his own experience. Some people can tell you the almost the day and the hour when they realized they were supposed to enter religious life or the priesthood or so. Uh, others, it's more diffuse experience. It sort of grows over time. When people come asking me, I tell them if they feel they are called to some type of religious life or to the priesthood, look at the, the lifestyle that what distinguishes the different forms of religious life, both in men's and women's communities, and distinguishes religious life from diocesan priesthood is going to be, to some extent, the lifestyle. Uh, It's very different in diocesan priesthood for apostolic religious communities and for monastic communities. If someone is attracted to monastic life, they're probably going to like structure, feel that they do best if there's a structure that's provided so that For example, if I get up and we have the vigil office, well, I know everyone else is going to be there, so I might as well go too. And those times of prayer are set into the daily schedule for me. How many times a day do you pray in the monastic life? Uh, St. Benedict had seven day hours in the night on, and plus a night office. At Belmont now we have uh, four day hours, vigil office really, lauds, the morning prayer, midday prayer, and vespers, and then Compline is recited individually. Now these, but these, yeah. these prayer hours, you don't pray in an hour. Not an hour. They're, they're times. <laughs> so they're really, are they minutes or half hours? Or? 
vigils uh, is about a half hour. Lods and vespers slightly shorter, and the midday prayer is about fifteen minutes. And then we have the conventional. So really, these are beautiful opportunities to just just come before stop God, and pray. To see, stop and pray for a few minutes. It's, it's it's not so long that you go, boy, these I can't take these things are too long. No, what's really beautiful is they're basically biblical based prayer services, the Psalms, scripture readings, other readings at times, hymns, and you realize you're speaking back and forth to one another the same prayers that Jesus used in reciting the Psalms. Uh, but that structure, you know, getting what's, what, what would attract someone to monastic life, they have to choose the community too, because each monastic community has its own personality it's because of the stability there. A small community has a different feel to it than a large community, a community that has a, a school attached to it, as we do, we sponsor the college, has a different rhythm than a monastery which does not. monastery that's uh, urban or suburban is different from one that's rural. So look at the community and feel its personality. Do you want to stay in one place? Monastic spirituality is based on sort of the two principal fonts of, of Christian life, the liturgy, the celebration of the mystery of the Lord's coming, dying, and rising, and of that being repeated in the lives of the saints, and the Bible. Those are the two fundamental wellsprings of monastic spirituality. So do you want to stay in one community for a lifetime? Do you like liturgical prayer together in community? Is structure helpful? A thing such as that distinguish monastic life um, from other forms of religious life. It's not a value judgment. It's simply some things fit some people and others fit others. Where would someone best flourish? And I guess the thing to do there would to encourage someone to explore. Explore, visit different communities. Uh, there are different types of monastic communities. You've got the Benedictine tradition. You've got the Cistercian tradition, both the common observance and the Trappists. You've got the Carthusians, which are very... Uh, unique form of monastic life, different from Benedictine life. The same with the women's monastic life. You've got monastic communities of nuns, of sisters, and you've got apostolic communities. So, Robert, you wouldn't want to go look at the uh, the nuns, though. You're not allowed to join. <laughs> no, and I don't think, because there's some vows, uh, <laughs> like as a married person, uh, just for people that may not be Catholic, especially monks are all single, aren't they? Monks take three vows in St. Benedict's rule, which sort of predates the systemization of poverty, chastity, and obedience as the the indices of consecrated life. So St. Benedict says stability in the community, to lead the monastic life as it's lived in the community you belong to and stay with them. A curious term in Latin, which he calls conversatio morum, which basically would mean commitment to lead the monastic manner of life, which is going to be a life of celibate chastity, that is not to marry, to give up ownership and to try to simplify your life to seek to grow in a life of prayer and a desire for prayer, to work on behalf of the community. Then the third vow, which really encompasses all of them in anyone's life, is obedience. To be obedient to the call one has received and, and all the obligations that go with that, that way of life. Our students asked me to speak to them about a year ago on obedience, and I told them actually they had been the best teachers of their parents in obedience because their parents had obviously done a good job, which meant they had to sacrifice and to deny themselves and to learn the sacrifices that love requires, especially when these students were children. And so everyone lives obedience if you're faithful to your call. Even an abbot. 
abbot has to be the most obedient one in the monastery. <laughs> Very, it's got all these other abbots around. Well, abbot, how long does it take for, you mentioned vows, and with the, the, mm-hmm. obviously you don't show up and look at the pamphlet and say, yeah, I'm in, and then you take the vows. It doesn't work that way, obviously. How does one grow closer into the community? How long does that process take, typically? The, uh, the process of living in the community will take a minimum of a little over four years, but there's normally a discernment process before that in which people will visit, and we'll ask people to come back several times to visit simply to see, is, does this place fit them, and do they fit us? Um, and they may want to visit other apostolic or apostolic communities or other monasteries of different size and place to determine what, what fits best. Then we have a screening process, um, both a screening process with the individual monks in our community or a group of them interviewing prospective candidates, basic medical screening to make sure the person's in, in, in fairly solid health, and a psychological screening, which is really to see what are the strengths and weaknesses that need to be both built upon and, and cared for in the formation process. Then someone comes and lives, actually moves in for a period we call a postulancy. Uh, that will vary from monastery to monastery, usually a period of several months. The novitiate is a year and a day, and that's followed by a, a minimum of a three-year period of temporary vows. So it's about a little over four-year four period. Well, this is obviously not something, though, that's uh, just uh, rushed into. And obviously there's plenty of time there for discernment. Mm-hmm. And make sure that you're actually truly answering a call and not your own, you're not running from something, and et cetera, et cetera. That's what you try to do ahead of time with the visits and the interviewing the person, a fairly invasive interview into their life. At the same time, there's one of the monks is the novice master, the formation director, who mentors those newly come through the whole process to see if, in fact, our way of monastic life fits that person and they us. Ultimately, the community has to vote to accept someone. The abbot cannot do that on his own. So if someone wants to enter the novitiate or take either the, the temporary or particularly the, the solemn vows, they're presented to the, the chapter, that is, the group of all the monks and final vows. And the novice master will make a report, and they will vote whether or not to accept the man. If they vote no, then he cannot be accepted. But generally, you're not going to present someone who is Who's that. going to likely get the vote right, of no. Right. But that, okay, but that'd that's be good. obvious. That's good to know. And uh, mm-hmm. thank you so much. It's been very enlightening to find, just so we know more about uh, what it is to be a monk. I appreciate the opportunity because there are not that many of us, although there are about 50, I would imagine, roughly speaking, communities of monastic men in the, in the United States and an equal number of monastic women. Well, we'll pray for you guys, uh, you. And, and I know that you're praying for us. We do. That's what we do. What do monks do? We pray. That's right. Wonderful. Well, Abbot, if you would do us the honor of maybe a, a, a final prayer. Let us pray. Oh, God, so direct all our actions and our thoughts today that they may be in accord with your will and that everything we do or say may be for your glory. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at The Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.